Welcome to the BIOS podcast by Elix Ventures. BIOS is a community of early stage healthcare and life sciences founders and investors. BIOS curates content, hosts events, crafts resources, and creates a community to facilitate collaboration. BIOS unites like-minded members of the startup universe and is anchored by Alix Ventures, a San Francisco-based venture fund that invests in early-stage healthcare and life sciences companies. To learn more about us, visit bios.community or alix.vc. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community, sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. We're thrilled to welcome Vic Bajaj, Managing Director at Foresight Capital to the show today. Thank you once again for joining us, Vic. To help co-host this episode, I'm joined by a special co-host here, our Alix Ventures operating partner, Mark Polito. Mark, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself to kick things off? Absolutely. And Vic, we're delighted that we're together today. I think the listeners and participants in the BIOS community will really enjoy the next hour. My background has been in healthcare all my life as an advisor, investor, and uh, operator. Most recently, I was on the board of directors of Anovalon Corporation before we went private last November. And then before that, uh, was with the company as chairman and CEO that Anovalon acquired, a healthcare IT cloud-based company, Ability Network, Bain Capital, and Summit Partners sponsors. And then I have a deep experience in private equity, as well as venture advising. Before that, a, a number of years as a CEO, so being on both sides of the table, as an investor, as well as an operator, CEO of prominent companies like McKesson Corporation, Novartis Pharmaceuticals US, uh, chaired a board in the diagnostic space, Quidel, which is at the forefront of rapid testing today. And then going from Fortune 15 in revenue to a $0 Sequoia-backed startup in the healthcare uh, benefits area. So a long experience in big and small, very formal and structured, very entrepreneurial. I'm currently an operating partner at Alix Ventures. Also, I serve as a member of the University of Notre Dame Mendoza College of Business Advisory Council, and previously was on a number of not-for-profit boards, both in education and youth at risk as well as different corporate boards, Charles Schwab and others. And we have a personal passion project. Our family business is Cleta Walker Winery and Estate Vineyards here in Napa Valley, as well as our family foundation. 
thanks for the great background, Mark, and excited to have uh, a face-off of Titan today on BIOS Podcast. Vic, wonderful to have you join us and would love if you can share an, an introduction here and give our listeners a bit more of the amazing background you have. Absolutely. Uh, Chaz, Mark, so nice to be with you today and thank you for the invitation. Let me apologize first to your audience for my voice. You know, like many of us just recovered from a breakthrough case of the Omicron variant. And the only symptom left, I'm afraid, is a, a, a very sore throat and raspy voice. Though that said, I suspect that most people would agree uh, that our profession would be greatly improved if we all spoke less and, and listened more. So Chaz, my background, I'm a managing director at Foresight Capital, which is a $4 billion AUM roughly fund founded by uh, my colleague uh, and mentor Jim Tannenbaum about 10 years ago that specializes in the life sciences and healthcare very broadly. And we are unique in that we support companies really from inception all the way to the launch of their products and public liquidity. Happy to elaborate on that more later. I'm also the CEO of our company incubator, Foresight Labs. And Foresight Labs, its mission is to really create transformative companies at the interface of the life sciences and healthcare and data science. So prior to Foresight, I was not an investor. I've been a company founder, executive, and academic. So I came to Foresight from Grail, and at Grail, I was the chief scientific officer. Grail's mission was really to detect cancer early and intercept it when it can be cured. And it's the first in a generation of data science-oriented companies that have successfully launched what I think are very transformative products. Prior to Grail, uh, I actually did similar things. I was a co-founder and chief scientific officer of Google's efforts in healthcare, what uh, we eventually named Verily. And its intramural programs and also its many joint ventures, they represented at the time the greatest sustained set of experiments to actually marry healthcare and data science. Some of them, even though early, have uh, been quite successful and are instructive for how that field may evolve. I also chaired Verily's scientific advisory board until I came to Foresight. And prior to Google, you know, I was an entrepreneur early in the genomics era, but my passion was in academia, and I was spent most of my time as an academic principal investigator in the LBNL and UC Berkeley system, which was just an amazing experience. I still have an adjunct appointment at uh, Stanford Medical School, but I no longer have a lab, so don't consider myself an academic anymore. Vic, wow, what an impressive and deep background. Why biotech? What sparked your interest in the field? It, it, it's an it's a interesting question. I always had one foot in the entrepreneurial world, even as an academic, and yeah, I greatly enjoyed being an academic and learning from students in particular and colleagues all over the world. So it's a really hard decision and a measured one to leave. And maybe you never completely leave. But anyway, what caused me to contemplate leaving was the realization that major advances in biology and medicine were on the horizon and that they were driven by tools of large-scale computation. Computational biology as a discipline, for example, was advancing to the point where it could deliver insights into formerly mysterious and highly heterogeneous areas of biology. For example, in oncology, we were finally 
not just able to describe the disease in the case of symptoms, sites of origin, and a molecular ontology, but new methods together with new data sets could actually teach us about what was causing the disease, what are the causal genetic rearrangements and other factors that are responsible for the emergence of all of the hallmarks of cancer. And scaling that kind of reasoning up, I realized, both on the computational side and the problem of actually generating the raw data with these new instruments that were emerging from sequencing and single cell biology. Those were really projects where academia could play a role, but there was a commensurate and even greater translational role that industry would have to play for those scientific advances to really reach patients. That's why I decided to go to Google. And when I came to Google, I remarked that really as scientists, even the questions that we can ask about nature are entirely circumscribed by the tools that we use to answer them. And the tools that Google had developed, obviously for completely different purposes, when turned on questions of biology, they would be totally revelatory in the way that early microscopes were. So that, that's why I left academia, went into biotech. That was a very interesting journey. You know, I had the opportunity to put these ideas in practice with a very stellar team that we built at Verily. And then after that, I had the chance to work with a equally a stellar team of very deeply committed scientists, engineers, and clinicians at Grail to advance some of those concepts in the field of early cancer detection. So those experiences really uh, were what I was after in leaving academia to really take the latest science and translate them as rapidly as possible, the latest scientific developments into things that have a chance of benefiting patients in my lifetime. Throughout your career, as you transition from one sector to another, one uh, industry to another academia operating, investing, has there been a North Star or a common thread that has tied everything together? It's an interesting question, difficult to answer. I would say that I've been exposed from a very early age to the practice of modern medicine. My mother, for example, she is a physician in Canada in Ontario's provincial healthcare system where I was born. And like many of my colleagues at places like Stanford, you know, she's still practicing and has been throughout the pandemic. So I learned from her and others like her the importance of a focus on things that actually make a difference in patients' lives, and also of how long that takes, how high the threshold of evidence is before that kind of benefit is even possible, and even lessons about the uneven impact of our interventions in people in a healthcare system. So those lessons have taught me really to avoid the incremental in favor of things that can make an enormous difference in many people's lives. I haven't always served that, but that's always been in my heart as a motivation for my career decisions. And, and Vic here, one question I think that perhaps we love to ask our guests as we embark on episodes and uh, is telling as you've done so many things transpiring to this amazing future that's ahead for patients it comes from Dennis Gabor, electrical engineer and recipient of the 1971 Nobel Prize in Physics. He says the future cannot be predicted, but the future can be invented. Can you share with us perhaps what does inventing the future mean to you? 
Sure. And Chaz, perhaps I have a slightly contrarian view here. I think, first of all, as venture capitalists, we often express the conceit that we are thought leaders and we are not thought leaders. We do not invent the future. We do not even summon the future. We have one job. That job is to take risks on the creative and unconventional entrepreneurs who do invent the future. And we do everything possible to help them achieve their transformational dreams by removing barriers to their success. And I really feel that ours is fundamentally a service profession in the sense that we only succeed when they do. Love to hear that. And the founder first mentality, I think definitely resonates with us here at Alix as well. Let's dive into our, our, our first topic today and, and discuss more about Foresight Capital and your focus really on, on tech bio platforms. So as managing director at Foresight, you invest in a vast number of companies here from gene editing platforms like Intellia, infrastructure firms like Somalogic. Can you share more with us about Foresight? What's your focus? Why did you join and perhaps some of the companies uh, that you are helping make a difference in the world here? Sure. Let me start by describing why I joined. Yeah, I gave the example of Grail as a transformative company. I think it's a new breed of company, one uh, of a variety in which you assemble a data set that is so profound in its scope in an area of biology that it really produces a lot of product optionality and is even a catalyst for changes in the standard of care. And what we realized, many people at Foresight Capital who were investors at Grail, Jim, me collectively, is that our healthcare economy is in the middle of a transformation, which in the end, using tools of that sort and large data sets of that sort, will make product development more efficient uh, and more responsive to the needs of our patients. And the question is, how can we catalyze that? How can we influence that? so that we take care of the greater medical needs rather than focusing primarily on the needs of fewer and fewer patients. So a chance to participate in that transformation at the large scale is what attracted me to Foresight Capital and colleagues like Jim Tannenbaum and Michael Rome and Dorothy Margolsky and many others who have been espousing those views for a long time. What's different about it is also what attracted me here we really privilege a very diligent investigation of the scientific and clinical factors as a baseline for anything that will eventually reach patients, whether that is a therapeutic or a platform that contributes to discovery or even a healthcare services enterprise. We're quite focused on understanding the relationship between the science, the technology, and the eventual outcomes that we want to achieve in a clinical setting. And so the team reflects that. We have a lot of people on the team who are or were practicing scientists before they joined the investment world in a wide variety of industries. And we work collectively together as a scientific team to evaluate each opportunity. And that's something you know that was very familiar to me as an operator of high-performing scientific organizations. And that's why Foresight was um, such an attractive uh, opportunity. So in terms of our investment focus, which is the second question that you asked, one of our greatest themes that we've been developing is exactly the one that I mentioned, which has to do with all the ingredients of healthcare transformation. The harbinger of this, of course, was in precision oncology, 
We've been very successful investors in that space, led by my colleagues, Michael Rome and Dorothy Margolsky. But beyond that, the kinds of things that we've seen happen in cancer are going to happen more broadly. Larger and larger data sets about basic human biology are not only resolving disease heterogeneity, but they're teaching us increasingly about causal factors of disease and allowing us to pick interventions which are very specific and which are backed by reliable primary human evidence. We're also increasingly able to develop these products faster and deploy them to the right populations at the right time. That's the science of precision medicine. And we think that is going to be transformative in the way that we develop and deliver products. In particular, there are enormous market failures that have prevented a wholesale embrace of programs that are targeted against common disease, the things that most often kill us and which have a broad impact on the largest number of people. Cancer is among them. Infectious disease, as we've seen, is another. Cardiovascular disease is another huge unmet medical need or constellation of medical needs. We think now that part of healthcare transformation is really in developing the tools to make more oncology-like approaches to these areas possible and routine. That is going to cure a lot of market failure and a lot of inequity in the system. So that's one of our investment theses, but to pursue that, we must invest not just in the therapeutics companies, but in the companies producing large data sets and methods to look at those data sets. Peter Donnelly's Genomics PLC is an example. DNA Nexus is an example. Fabric Genomics even is an example. And our many sequencing investments from Element Genomics to 10X are an example of the platform technologies that go into producing these data sets in the first place. And then of course we invest in or create the companies that are using data that results from these new tools uh, to solve problems about human disease, to understand them, intervene early, intervene efficiently. So that is a big investment thesis. Another one that is emerging has to do with the consequences of these ideas on healthcare services. How can we use our greater knowledge of the individual experience of the healthcare system, the individual natural history of the disease, the individual's risk factors to inform care and deliver it in a way that's tailored to the risks that the individual faces and the uh, preferences um, that the individual has, a uh, patient or a healthy person in engaging with the healthcare system. So these things, which really represent a systematic approach at Foresight Capital, our embrace of healthcare transformation and where we think the future will be, say, on a five to 10 year timescale. We think that a lot of the investments that we're making today are going to be the great companies operating in that space in five to 10 years. To build on that, you founded Foresight Labs, a venture creation effort to form new companies that would shake up healthcare with the aid of data science. Can you maybe dive into that and share with us a little bit more about what prompts you start at Foresight Labs? Sure. The thesis that I outlined is one that is coming true now, where larger and larger data sets are teaching us more about everything from basic disease biology to the personal experience of disease in the case of clinical data sets. And we see a lot of capital, both in big pharma in big tech even, and in the biotech sector, flowing to efforts that 
try to capitalize on those data sets and those ideas in one way or the other. There are also, I should mention, new laboratory techniques, which are very data intensive, which allow us to do massive experiments that really resolve heterogeneous biological phenomena, sometimes in new model systems, but always in a way that allows us to test causation in a way that was impossible before. For example, the whole science of functional genomics. So if you put all of these things together, there is you know, a real opportunity to make product development more efficient and responsive. But we found that in spite of the amount of capital flowing into this space, for various reasons that I'll go into, very few companies are going to successfully produce products that benefit patients. And some of those failure modes are scientific, that the data sets that they're working with are not statistically powered to answer questions that are relevant for product development. Also, many of these companies, given those limitations, do not have the ability to generate data sets of their own that would answer new questions of biology. In fact, in the way that Grail did, and every single Foresight Labs company is constituted to do. And then still analyzing those data using the latest methods is very difficult to do at scale because to scale that up to these large data sets, to do it with statistical rigor requires a combination of engineering knowledge and knowledge in various forms of statistics, ranging from statistical genetics to machine learning, that is really difficult for companies to access early. And then finally, you know, you can count no longer on the fingers of one hand, but perhaps on the fingers of two hands, product development environments, companies where there are really been good training grounds for people to develop these skills and understand practically how to apply them in a product development setting. So observing all those barriers, we decided to create Foresight Labs. And the primary asset in Foresight Labs, frankly, is the spectacular team that we've assembled. My colleagues are from places like Grail, like Verily, like the Regeneron Genetics Center, places that have really been at the forefront of developing these methods and applying them to large-scale problems in everything from care delivery to early drug discovery. There are about 35 of them in Boston and San Francisco, and they are a very creative and dedicated bunch of people who are quite interested in serving a catalytic role in ushering in um, this new revolution. So what they have done is created not just a repository of data that is quite significant, mixture of public and proprietary data, but also the tools to generate new large-scale data sets, sometimes in cohorts of even 100,000 patients in some of our projects, and to make sense of it and use it to really answer questions about biology or clinical medicine. That platform we apply in partnership with each of the companies that we create, not just at inception, but for the duration, for as long as the companies need it. And that model of creating these new data sets, whether they're in the laboratory or in the wild in clinical data sets, with that kind of team that serves as durable partners to the companies as they scale and grow forward is one that at this stage in the history of data science oriented healthcare and life sciences companies, I think is quite uh, catalytic. Can you touch a little bit more Vic and talk about perhaps some of the companies that you've started with Foresight Labs and what's on deck currently? 
Absolutely. We have started several companies, I think three of which are publicly announced. A fourth is about to be announced tomorrow, and I can tell you about it. These companies are really in three areas. So perhaps I can go over the three areas and just give you an example in each. One is precision medicine. The idea that we can do in oncology, what we've done in oncology for a broader set of diseases that actually many, many, many more people suffer from. So in oncology, precision medicine is comparably easier, not to say that it was easy, just easier, because the genetic rearrangements, which are responsible for tumorigenesis or any of the hallmarks of cancer, the so-called drivers, their role as causal drivers of disease has been unambiguously established now through two decades of genomic and other studies. Also, uh, those same genetic drivers are the targets for the drugs, and those same genetic drivers are the stratifiers that we use in clinical trials and eventually through companion diagnostics, the stratifiers that we use to choose patients who would respond to those drugs. So it's a very um, linear set of reasoning that has resulted in short, impactful trials and drugs that reach benefit patients who will actually benefit from them. And that's been quite a transformation. So to do that in precision medicine outside of oncology is harder because we are dealing with rare genetic variation. That rare genetic variation is used to nominate targets which have a causal role in disease. But the variation is so rare that that is not the way in which we stratify patients into responding and non-responding families. Other methods are required to do that. Those methods depend on the kind of large data sets that Foresight Labs works with. So if you think about the areas in which this is important, we've created several precision medicine companies, but autoimmune disease is a prime example. There's a lot of information available about the genetic architecture of autoimmune disease. There's also a lot of biological information available about responders and non-responders that has not been quite put together yet, but we have the ability to generate large data sets in autoimmune disease as we have in oncology that would resolve the heterogeneity. So that kind of analysis internally led us to create a company now called Illumis, which is led by Martin Babler, former CEO of Principia. And its goal is to be really the world's first autoimmune disease, precision autoimmune disease company. It started with a detailed analysis of pleiotropic genetic nodes that lie at the heart of multiple autoimmune diseases. But for each of these, the genetic architecture points to new indications, new biomarker-driven approaches, and new stratifiers. So that company, uh, which recently closed uh, a large round with Matrix and other partners, is actually now in the clinical stage with a TIC2 asset that is an example, but not the only one of this kind of family. Obviously, that was a well-known target before we started it. It also has a data generation program through its observational studies and clinical trials, which will really seek to define the biological architecture of autoimmune disease at the right scale and with the right measurement tools to really teach us about the biological response and the patient experience and lay the foundations of a precision medicine strategy in that space. So as you can imagine, autoimmune disease is not the only thing that fits that paradigm. 
there are others. And uh, you know we have unannounced companies that you'll hear about in time that are pursuing them. One example you'll hear about tomorrow is a company that is uh, called 1016, which is going after a whole new area of biology that has to do with somatic mosaicity or how the genome of progenitor cells changes over time and causes the emergence of genetic families or clonality. And what are the implications of that? It's not just that it leads to cancer, that's well known, but also a whole host of inflammatory associated conditions and other conditions, including in the cardiovascular disease space that are very important unmet medical needs. And so this company will seek to unlock that biology of somatic mosaicity and clonal hematopoiesis in particular to really understand it through large data generation exercises, but also to fundamentally intercept it in a new way. And in doing so, it really ushers in for us a important precision medicine concept, which is that if you can understand the earliest stages of disease, you can actually intervene early before the harm is done. That doesn't preclude you from using the same mechanisms to intervene later, but the compelling and tantalizing possibility is to actually intervene early in the course of a disease. So that's another precision medicine company that we've created. Um, sorry for the long uh, explanation. I'm uh, very passionate about these ideas and the teams involved. That company is led by Mark Chow, who was the founder of 47. The other area which you can imagine that we're quite interested in are broader platform companies that do not really operate in a single therapeutic area. A really great example of that is a company called Interline, which is led by Zach Sweeney, who was the CSO of Denali. Interline was funded by our colleagues and friends at Arch after we launched it from Foresight Labs along with Foresight Capital. And Interline seeks to create really the first systematic toolkit that will understand and modulate dysfunctional protein communities with the right level of finesse. So it's not producing cumbersome bidentate molecules like Protax, but small molecule drugs that are capable of really changing the interactions among members of a protein complex to achieve a therapeutic effect. And that platform company has multiple components, but they include, as you might imagine, a combination of genetics and proteomics to understand from primary human evidence, what are the lesions at the protein-protein interface, which are causal drivers of disease. And that's paired with a computational chemistry and machine learning platform that is allowing us to access in silico elements of protein-protein associations and their interactions with small molecule in a way that was methodologically and just in terms of computational capacity, impossible even five years ago. And that's also being combined with you know, a variety of new cellular phenotyping and other assays to create a really robust target discovery platform across multiple indications. Another platform company that we've created is uh, a very interesting. It's called Sistina. It's in a little bit of a different area, an area of synthetic biology. This company is led by Bill Colston, who is the uh, grandfather of the single cell revolution. He developed in his academic group in the national lab systems, a lot of approaches to droplet encapsulation of cells and microfluidic handling of reactions in droplets. 
That led to his formation of Quantalife, the lineage of Quantalife. Those people involved also went on to found 10X and Inscripta. And Sistina as a synthetic biology company starts with the following realization. We are now in the perhaps third generation, second generation of synthetic biology efforts. And they've been very successful, but they fall far short of the promise of really engineering new biology or creating generic approaches to manufacturing substances through bioreactors where otherwise there would be environmentally unfriendly, expensive, uh, inaccessible, either through chemical synthesis or natural product isolation. And the reason why that is happening is because even in the second generation of these companies that have room scale robotic systems to automate their experiments, the combinatorial dimensionality of those experiments is just not commensurate with the underlying biological complexity. Those experiments probe sometimes less than 1% of the genetic variation that gives rise to a phenotype. So we can um, expect that in combination with directed evolution and other approaches to be transformational, but narrowly so. So we asked the question, how could you increase that by orders and orders of magnitude? And the answer of course, is to harness all the tools of single cell biology to perform edits and read out phenotypes at the single cell level. That is the atomistic unit of biology. And it allows Sestina to do experiments whose dimensionality is 10,000 to a million times higher than any experiments that have been done before. And that means that the space of real biological complexity can be explored efficiently. It's also then, as you might imagine, because it's a Foresight Labs company, those data sets are a basis real machine learning experiments that are only possible when you have large scale data sets whose biases are relatively weak and characterized, but who are expansive with respect to the biology that you're trying to perturb. We've seen this time and time again in industries or subfields that have been transformed by machine learning, including natural language processing, including uh, things like image analysis, that it's only when data sets of sufficiently low bias and sufficiently large scale emerge machine learning approaches allow you to navigate that space much more efficiently, whether the task is classification or to generate a new cell state in this case. So that's the basis of Sustina, to combine all of those things together to really create a practical route to manufacturable synthetic biology products that is much less limited than what's been there before. So those are two examples of platform companies. A third area, which I won't talk about much, that we're starting to explore is just the consequences of the philosophies that I'm talking to you about in healthcare services. And in healthcare services, often the data sets that we would use to deliver insights, yes, there's a role for genetics. Yes, there's a role for complex molecular biology, even in the individual, to stratify, to predict risks. But there's a great deal of low-hanging fruit that comes from the pervasive availability of clinical records and clinical information for the first time. So our goal is to really launch a few companies that exploit those concepts, that also 
are built upon the regulatory changes and market changes that have come in virtual care in the last two years due to COVID to create healthcare service delivery models that are much more efficient from a systems perspective and also much more responsive to the needs of the consumer in various contexts. So Mark, Chaz, sorry for the long explanation. Hopefully that was helpful and gave some insight on the areas that we're pursuing. Love to hear the passion, Vic, that you're up to at Foresight Labs and the work you're doing on the bleeding edge here. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. You're uniquely qualified with your distinguished accomplishments and background the curiosity of a co-founder and CSO of a very large, verily within Google Alphabet, and then the spin out from a large company versus a traditional startup. Thoughts on both? Let's discuss the first one. Verily is a unique kind of experiment in our field. And Andy Conrad really understood what he was doing in setting this up in the way that he did. And I've just learned uh, so much from him. But it's a, it's an overused analogy, but Verily is a little bit like AT&T Bell Labs in that it was early. I would say some of the concepts that we were exploring even in 2013 were years ahead of where the field is. And it really served as a systematic incubator of sorts in which at a time when the future was so far away that private industry wouldn't summon the money for, say, a grail scale project, Verily was a way that we could try in multiple, multiple different verticals, the union of data science and the life sciences to understand where that space as a whole is going. So not only was it intrinsically successful as a business and remains so, but I think it was catalytic in the way that AT&T Bell Labs will be. That's how it will be remembered in spawning these new ideas. So if I can list a few, those ideas range from things like how artificial intelligence and new imaging methods can be used to shape robotic surgery to actually move robotic surgery from a field in which few outcomes have been demonstrated, few beneficial outcomes as composed to convention, as compared to minimally invasive surgery, to one in which systematically a combination of machine augmentation allows surgeons to do things at a lower error rate and higher skill level than they were ever before. So that's a concept that we launched with a subsidiary of J&J in the form of Verb Surgical that J&J has reacquired that really explored transformational concepts, which you'll see 10 years from now, are the basis of new ways of conducting invasive surgical procedures. So that's an example. Other examples you know, include verily strengths in, in immunology and understanding the immune response. That's a project led by my uh, colleague Charlie Kim at Verily, that you know, really was ahead of its time, as is many of Verily's clinical projects, 
including the baseline study, the idea that we could produce a deeply phenotype cohort of individuals who would serve as participants in clinical trials that benefit them, but also which would provide a molecular longitudinal atlas of disease evolution, that was far ahead of its time considering the maturity of the analytical platforms in 2013, 2014, when we launched that product. And you see now seven, eight years later that that's turning into a framework that pharma companies are collaborating with Verily to use in a variety of innovative settings and clinical trials. Verily's care delivery operations also are similarly early, but growing now and blossoming um, into things that are along the lines of the hypothesis that I was talking to you about before to do with really personalizing care delivery in the interests and preferences of the patients. So to answer your questions, we learn a great deal collectively from these large-scale efforts that only the tech industry has been able to do because of the ability to launch many, many things in parallel and to see what blooms effectively, and then to invest in those, whether those investments come from Google or Verily, or they come from people who leave and set up small companies, which then attract investments. I think you trace a lot of the lineage back to the ideas that were developed in that group. So that's the role that I think they, they play. I think one thing that's, that's interesting is I believe very strongly, as you might imagine, in the power of harnessing the entrepreneurial ecosystem. And that's where spin-outs from large tech companies or in the Grail example that you cited from a large platform company, Illumina, are very successful in reorienting a company towards the ingredients of its own success. Ultimately, the forces that govern entrepreneurial companies, the discipline, the crucible of the entrepreneurial experience is a success factor, I believe. And so the ability to spin these things out when they still need a lot of innovation before they grow too large into a independent company, I think is catalytic. We learned that at Grail. We also learned that in many of Verily's joint ventures, uh, that spinning them out under independent management where they can take a life of their own is um, really transformative. And that's the lesson that we've tried to adopt at Foresight Labs we help start these companies, we create them, but <clears throat> very soon we turn them over to independent managers and CEOs to whom we hope we're effective partners in the long term, but they have their independent incentives to make the companies successful. And I think that's a very balanced and a very flexible model. I mentioned your continuing to be an active faculty member at Stanford, what synergies do you find with academic and medical practice as well as managing a venture fund? I, I should say again that I don't run a lab at Stanford. So the synergies are indirect and many of them are personal. Frankly, I really miss interacting with students and learning from students and colleagues in the academic setting. Obviously, I learn from my colleagues in this setting as well, but academia is really structured to facilitate that. So what I try to do is mentor grad students, postdocs, new faculty who are trying to do things where I may have some skills where I can at least provide advice. 
ideas that they want to commercialize, large grants that they want to assemble or turn into something larger than perhaps one investigator can do, or uh, larger, more strategic programs. And the synergy for me, I really feel committed to giving back to the university ecosystem, especially places like Berkeley are truly transformative in people's lives. And I've never forgotten the experience of being a small participant in that. And it means a lot to me. But also, I think, as I alluded to before, as venture capitalists, we are completely dependent on the university ecosystem and the people who come from it for innovation. And it's our you know, duty to be involved in that. You know, as another example of that, we recently created a fellowship program that my friend and colleague, Scott McIsaac, along with others, is running at Foresight Capital. And you would just not believe the quality of people and their level of passion for making a difference in applying scientific principles that they're working on in their careers. These are all grad students, postdoc, med students, and really being a part of translating that into things that benefit patients. So being involved in all of that personally, it, it just gives me great hope that the next generation of people is so energized and also so focused on uh, doing the right thing. At Alex, we're big believers in the university entrepreneurial ecosystem and the impact, and you've described examples and how crucial that will be to the new and next wave of biotech. Can, can you share your insights about university commercialization offices and working better or learning from the startup sector? Yeah, absolutely. University commercialization offices are very heterogeneous in their ability to actually do things which are in the interests of startup companies. So it's hard to generalize. One thing I will say is that there is an infrastructure in modern universities which focuses our attention on the same few universities, the usual suspects, Stanford, MIT, Caltech, Berkeley, etc. And part of it is that the entrepreneurial ecosystem is better developed there. But that ecosystem does not develop as well at other universities. And we have a whole category of not just company founders, but employees who are creative, talented all over the world, who because of these structures existing only in a few places, we are ignoring. So part of our approach to university commercialization is to really cast a broad net for people who may come from anywhere, who may not have had the same access to the same entrepreneurial ecosystems and resources, but who would be no less creative and no less spectacular founders and employees. And I think that is the major weakness, not just of the university systems, but really how we interact with universities. There's a bias in our networks, a bias in the way that we recruit, a bias in the way that we evaluate that has to be systematically dismantled, especially in an environment in spite of the present geopolitical realities in which science is going to be increasingly a global endeavor and creativity, not just work product, will come from all corners of the planet, in particular China, India, obviously the United Kingdom and Europe. Our approach over the next five years is to be very general in finding the right people. Vic, we're in year three, 24 months plus, as not only our country, but our world is 
continuing to learn and evolve on what and how to manage COVID-19 and the various emerging technologies. Can, can you talk about COVID and life sciences in general? Yes, I mean, the COVID experience has been very difficult for all of us. Some of us who've had one foot in each part of the experience, it's been almost a schizophrenic existence, you know, in the sense that our profession and biotech, we've been part of a campaign to make a difference in COVID where we can, but also largely our businesses have been successful. They've adapted. At the same time, it is impossible to ignore the things that we see around us. What I've seen in California, ranging from investigator-initiated efforts in the first days of the pandemic to stand up basic testing capability to private pilots volunteering to move patients around in their airplanes, COVID patients from the Central Valley to other areas for medical treatment, because there was no systematic approach to doing that, to all of the overworked healthcare staff and the morbidity and mortality associated with that. Looking at all of that, the only analogies that I have are to experiences working in uh, crisis situations or in medical relief projects in the developing world. And this is California on its own, one of the largest economies in the world. So I think as a whole, we have to consider what it would take for the government, including the military, including the public health agencies, of which there are dozens and the responsibility is spread across dozens, to really be ready for the next pandemic. The twin missions of pandemic response and biodefense are just ones for which we're ill-prepared right now. And a, a colleague of mine, Damien Segoyan at Foresight, he's very passionate about this area as an expert in this area. And we talk about this a lot. If you look at other areas of national policy that fit this kind of pattern, take national defense. National defense, a industrial complex has evolved to satisfy the needs of the Department of Defense, even though there are fewer civilian uses for some of those technologies, there are military contractors and other entities that are really able to marshal technology development, contracting and program management to produce large-scale systems. In the biotechnology space, it's even harder because the government, unlike in the defense space, is not a major contractor or consumer of biotechnology products. It's an independent entity, set of entities, an independent industry. And for government to harness that well requires a new uh, kind of model, especially if we're going to expect some kind of zoonotic pandemic, say on a five-year timescale and something severe, maybe every decade, then we need to think through how we can turn in California and elsewhere the extreme resources that we have available in biotech to the public health mission in a way that is durable, in a way that the business model survives once COVID, hopefully next year, is a fading memory. So I think that's the challenge that we face both as government policy advisors and even in the venture space is really coming up with the right business models to make that possible. Otherwise, the um, hope of really being prepared for the next pandemic or, God forbid, a biodefense situation 
or attack vector is not one that we'll meet anytime soon. Vic, it's been an absolute pleasure here to have you on the show. Thanks once again for joining us and a, a few rapid fire questions before we uh, come to a close here. Uh, we'd love to flip it around for a second. Have it been an inspiration for so many of the listeners in our audience? Who inspires you and why? It's a great question. I have been very fortunate to work with the most amazing teams, especially at Foresight Labs now. I mean, the people that I work with, they're not only the leading scholars and practitioners in their field, but each and every one is here out of a motivation to make a fundamental contribution in our profession. And uh, that combination for me has always been very inspiring. It's a combination of the quality of their work and their dedication. So that's honestly given me great comfort during what has been a very difficult two years to see a group of individuals like that so committed to, to their mission and executing so well. So I learn from them every day and I'm inspired by them every day. And Vic, as we look ahead here, maybe help us understand as we navigate hopefully past COVID and the not too distant future, what are some of the grand challenges facing life sciences over the next 30 years? It's a great question. I could list many. There are many scientific grand challenges in biology that we've yet to resolve. So it's a longer conversation, but I would say there's one grand challenge even beyond that that encompasses all of that. You know, as we amass these larger and larger data sets, they teach us about the fundamental drivers of disease. As we develop more and more sophisticated analytical and laboratory methods and use them to really greatly accelerate product development, there's two paths that we can take. We can apply that machinery to go after more precisely and more predictably the diseases of the few and make a lot of money doing that. Or we can use that knowledge to go after the difficult things, the societal problems, the greatest unmet medical needs for which presently large amounts of capital are required even to approach them. And we can use this technology to do that equitably, affordably, and with an aim not just to produce an effect in the individual, but an effect across a population. And that is a stark choice. And obviously there is only one right decision there. Making that right decision and creating the science and the business models which make that right decision the only one, that's a a grand challenge in the next 30 years. And maybe as we flash forward here to biotech now in, in 2050, 30 years from now, realizing some of the efforts that we've hopefully made in these challenges, what's that vision look like for you in biotech in 2050? That's a great question. I mean, first of all, I think that none of the large companies that we would consider players in pharma and biotech today in 2050, the landscape will look very different. The companies that are starting now in their ability to assemble massive data sets that look at fundamental phenomena, take ICON as an example, or others in our portfolio, they're going to be the dominant players in 2050. And those companies will be conducting product development in a very different way with large scale experiments that resolve fundamental biological drivers and really go after the root causes of disease. So I would hope that some companies in our portfolio will grow to be those massive companies in the future but we haven't seen a Google or Alphabet or Apple of the biotech space emerge yet. And I think the next few decades 
will really see the emergence of enormous companies that are doing things productively and very, very differently than the incumbents. And our hope is to participate and help usher forward some of those companies. And to build on that, Vic, as we look ahead as well, where do you see Foresight Capital and, and, and Foresight Labs in 2050? Well, we hope to be doing the same things that we're doing now, obviously with different tools and technologies. I hope that the people involved will have had spectacular careers and made numerous contributions in which they would take great personal pride to products that have actually touched uh, patients' lives. And beyond that, I would hope that we would participate, help usher in, help create, help support some of these great companies that I think perhaps haven't been created yet. Certainly, we can't predict which ones will grow to that. So that in 2050, there will be some really transformational companies that hopefully we will have had a hand uh, in helping along their journey. We've touched on some fantastic topics today in so many different spaces. Uh, maybe if you help our listeners wrap a bow around this conversation, any closing thoughts you'd like to share? Just that we are in extremely exciting times in our profession of great change and almost everything that we're doing. And if any of your listeners are you know, considering a career in biotech or things adjacent to biotech, I just can't imagine a better time to enter this industry and a time when the individual's impact on the things that we care about was ever greater. So it's just a spectacular time. And I would hope that any of your listeners who are earlier in their careers and, and on the fence, that they really consider carefully making this set of things their career. And Vic, we've touched on quite a few with Foresight Labs and Foresight Capital and the amazing companies you've started, the work you've been up to over the years. How can our listeners learn more about your work? The best way to learn about our work, of course, is through the companies that we create and you can or invest in. We're very proud of them. And I think to some extent that speaks for itself. And you can find those on the Foresight Capital websites, foresightcapital.com and the Foresight Labs website, foresightlabs.com. And I would also love it if uh, people who are listening look at the bios of our team members and see if you could see yourself among them. It's a very welcoming and interesting group, and we are going to grow a lot. And we look forward to engaging with people in uh, that kind of capacity as well. So if you'd like to join our team, we're always open to that at many levels. Thank you, Vic, for an incredible episode. We're very grateful for your time. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Chaz. Thanks, Mark. I'm glad that my voice hopefully survived and it was a lot of fun. Thanks for tuning in BIOS community. Sharing a quick shout out from Amazon Web Services. The AWS Startups team provides dedicated resources, expertise, and credits to help healthcare and life sciences startups grow and excel. We help startups build for scale, overcome technical and regulatory challenges, and accelerate time to market by opening doors and creating business opportunities. To learn more about these resources, including how to access $25,000 in AWS credits through our partnership with BIOS, please contact us at bios.community backslash AWS. Thank you for listening to the BIOS podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For more content, please visit bios.community or alix.vc.